Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hello, welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is our weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Uh, we have Java Chapman on the boards for, for us today. We appreciate him coming in. Kevin Farrell's our regular producer here at MPB. And this is our uh, weekly turn. We come in and we have an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, craftspeople, or people who work in their community to help promote the arts. Um, today, so we're going to talk about the writing life today with our guest, Harrison Scott Key. Harrison, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is your return to the Arts Hour. You yes. came in a few years ago with your first book, uh, The World's Largest Man, and you're back with your brand new book. Congratulations. Congratulations. Who are you again? You know, I I really wanted to call this um, even bigger than before or something, <laughs> you know, or the, you know, my, my mother, um, she still thinks the first book is about her. And I haven't, I haven't been able to, I haven't had the heart to tell her it's not, but I did, I did tell her that I was going to write more about her in this book and I was going to call it the world's fattest woman. <laughs> um, but that, that would be ugly. So I didn't do that. She's not fat. I mean, she's big bone, but I'm just, I'm kidding, mom, if you're listening. She doesn't listen did, to the radio. Did she stop you or, or she's, the attention she probably would be fine? Th- she, she probably thinks this book is about her too. It's it's a little. She definitely appears. Yeah, she's, she, she's a regular appearance in this book. Well, you know, so on the, I mean the the first book, the world's largest man. The first question I would get from everybody is, well, who is the world's largest man? And of course, I would say, well, you got to read the book, and you know, it, it might not be as literal as as it's sort of laid out to be, but obviously, it's more about masculinity. I talk. I deal much more profoundly and in depth with my relationship with my father. And so a lot of the conversations I would have in programs like this and in other interviews would be about my dad and manhood. And so people would always ask, well, tell tell us about your mother's influence, about tell us about her and how she shaped you as well. And it made me consider a lot more. I think I, I took for granted a lot of what my mother did because we didn't have a lot of conflict in this in the way that my dad and I did. And I don't like the cliche of, you know, especially with sons, dads, they're, they're going to have a fraught, complicated relationship, fathers and sons. But moms are so sweet and special and everybody loves mom. I do think most people love mom, but not just my mom, but any mom, but it's it's still complicated, the relationship that a mother has with a son or a daughter. And I think it probably does moms a disservice to assume that they're just all sweet and goodness and light. Uh, I think that oversimplifies moms a little bit. And all that to say that as I was working on this book, I thought a lot more about my mother and her influence on me, um, particularly in terms of, of comedy and um, and and language and a fascination with laughter and sort of how to create it and where do you find it and I think I talk I do talk about that yeah. in this book and she kind of becomes a collaborator later which we'll kind of talk about later in terms of yes. your your public in terms of your performance element. absolutely yeah. yeah so people who who don't know you're a native of Rankin County you grew yes. up here and uh, went to did some of your college uh, here and yes. you, you had a long trajectory in the uh, uh, higher education system. Yeah, I, I'm still in it in a way. 
I mean, I, wor- I work in higher education, right, so right. I've been in education since I started. And you're now at Savannah, in Savannah at the yeah. uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, SCAD that's which right. a lot of people know it by the acronym yeah. SCAD, and you and you teach there, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as continue to write. Um, so, so the last book, your the, your last book was about your father and kind of your relationship. This one seems more about Harrison going out into the world right. from Rankin County and and pursuing the American dream. Right. So there, it is. It's strange when you write about your life because you know people have a a rather as most writers do when they start out. You have a rather uh, sort of simplistic view of time as being this linear thing that because it is it moves from past to present to future and you think of even the way the metaphor of a timeline you know it's it's a thing that that's it's just a straight line that moves from left to right and when you when you write memoir it's more of you're more you have a time machine i mean the mind is a time machine memory is a time machine you move back and forth and when you go when you think about the past it affects your memory i mean we have, there are studies that show this that the more you remember something and the more you think about something the more your present situation impacts the way you remember a thing and that changes so much all that to say that when i'm when I wrote a memoir, people would say, well, another memoir? Like, you already wrote your life story, but a memoir is not an autobiography. And I know those words are often used interchangeably, but in the way I talk about it with students and other writers and young people who are interested in it is, you know, a memoir is a, it's just a little slice. It's a, it's a piece of something. And so it's almost like um, I'm going to write about, like, so in, with that first book, I wanted to write about anything in my life that was related to the South, masculinity, manhood, my dad, memories of him, what a man is. That's not everything. That's just a, that's a piece of it. And with this book, I was looking at different themes. A lot of there were, I would say, I would even argue that there were several chapters in the first book that could have easily been in this book and vice versa. But uh, I was looking for different themes and I was searching for a different sort of almost had a different search filter in memory with this book here. Yeah. And the search takes a while because you kind of you start off in in college and you're kind of trying out all these different things. But it it takes you a while to kind of get on the road to where you end up in writing the book that that, that, I mean, you you show us that that struggle to kind of get you from being the confused young person with a lot of ideas to I'm going to write this book and it's going to be about this. There was a great if you if you go back and look at the first book. There was this huge gap in the middle of it of about 10 years that I, I just completely fly right over and I don't talk about it at all. You know, there was right in the middle of that book, I, I, um, I talk about leaving home, going to college. Like I, and I don't talk about college. I just say, and, and I left, as most people do when they're 17 or 18. And then in the next chapter, originally that was, was going to be part one. And then part two was going to start with me getting married with this conveniently forgotten 10-year period in the middle. Because you don't want readers going, well, what happened? Where did you go to school? What happened then? And so I, I just flew right over it. And my editor very smartly said, you know, let's not make this a part one and a part two. Let's just go from this chapter to this chapter. We don't, we don't even want the reader to be thinking what happened to those 10 years. We just want them to move, move along with you in the story as it, as it rests. And so a lot of this book, especially the first half of this book, is that 10-year period what happens during that time. Yeah. Uh, You're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Harrison Scott Key, and his new book is Congratulations. Who are you again? Is that... Am I hitting that? I'm trying to figure out how to... 
if I should do it this more declarative different. or something. Well, you know? congratulations. Who are you again? Who are you again? Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Who are you again? You know, congratulations. Who are you again? And so, in fact, the what I love about this title, and I, in I mean, I, I, I created a, a survey and I sent it out to every writer and every friend I had, even some of my students, and asking them to pick because I had like ten different titles that I was interested in for this book. But I, I love this title because, um, it's. It's, it has a bittersweetness about it that I think most dreams have. Um, congratulations. Like, that's that's great. Things, something good has happened. And who are you again? Like, I've forgotten. You're so forgettable, I don't even remember your name. But I know I should be congratulating you. But also the again, I, the more, even after I picked this title, I realized how, um, how important that word again is and, and, and how it's connected to the who are you, um, that our identities uh, continue to evolve and change. And we think, I mean, I, like Java was asking me when I came in, uh, the last time I was in this building was for a job interview and to, to work on the radio, uh, here at, um, MPB. And I think it was probably 1997 or 1998. And I really, I wanted to be a DJ. I, I wanted to work in radio. I wanted to, and because I was always, had always been fascinated with language and talking and listening and music. Um, and then I thought I was an actor for a while, and then I thought I was a musician. Uh, I was in seminary. I was enrolled in seminary for uh, two days. Um, and so the again is very resonant for me in the title of this book, that continually recurring and not knowing who you are and trying out so many different identities. Yeah, and and it's interesting, you, you know, early on in the in your college years, you, you uh, read the, the famous Douglas Adams yes. trio, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it kind of kind of explodes your brain, I guess, in terms yes. of the possibilities. It, it, my brain has still exploded from that experience. I mean, I think anybody who, has, who does something creative uh, or has a dream, and I don't mean just creative. I'm not talking about just art or literature uh, or um, uh, being an actor, anything, music. I'm talking about anybody who wants to start a radio station or who, to open a new business. Um, anybody who wants to, I mean, you know, when the Colonel set out to create Kentucky fried chicken and sell fried chicken and a fast food, I mean, fried chicken was not fast food. Generally, it took a long time to make That was a dream at one point to sell people fried chicken very quickly. And so, uh, I completely lost my train of thought just then. Um, I, I feel like I've got amnesia. Um, I was, what was I saying? I was talking about, what, what did you ask me? Well, let's, maybe, let me, let me shift it a little in terms of like you, you, uh, Douglas Adams oh, had yeah, this, yeah, had this huge, yes. had just this huge no. impact, but it wasn't like you jumped immediately to, I'm going to write a no, Douglas Adams right. book. No, thank you for that reminder. So well, I guess what I mean is when you have a big dream, you'll have a moment where it's the Damascus Road moment. You have a moment where you're like, oh, that's what I want to do. And I'm, I'd never been in a play, never thought about being in a play. But when I did my first play, I was like, oh, my gosh, this the, the feeling of purpose. I remember putting my stage makeup on and I was like, it feels so weird how normal this feels to me right now, especially if you've read my first book and you know anything about my childhood and my dad. Like putting makeup on and putting a costume on felt so cool and natural. 
um, to do. And I was so surprised by that. And that's the experience I had when I read Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In fact, I read it around the same time I was in my first play. I had a lot of little brain exploding moments, as a lot of people do in college, um, where I realized I wanted to make people feel the way that book made me feel. I was so shocked and surprised that a book could be funny. I loved books. I've been reading books my whole life. But I, for me, humor was in, you know, the stand-up of uh, Robin Williams and George Carlin and Gallagher. I love Gallagher. Everybody, nobody remembers Gallagher. Remember with the watermelons? Yes, he's still, he's still with us. Does he still perform? I think he know? came through Jackson recently, actually. Man, yeah. I'm sorry that still I missed that. Still doing it. <laughs> still sledgeomaticing. Oh, man, I missed that guy. We would rent these videos. This, there was a place in Brandon called Home Video, the most creative name you could possibly have for a VHS rental store, and we would rent Gallagher videos. And I loved Gallagher. And I remember a couple of years ago, somebody was making fun of how bad Gallagher was. I was like, bad? He wasn't bad. He was a comic genius. But I I always thought that funny was for performance, that it was for a stage. And so when I read this book, all of a sudden this desire I had to, um, that my love of reading and my love of comedy, I'd never experienced that before. And they were so, separate. They were totally yeah, they segregated. Were, they, they were whole different worlds. Yeah. And it yeah. was so funny and it, and it was so smart. And there were all these references to philosophy and cultural history. And yet it was funny at the same time. So it was substantive. And so I'd always been told that comedy was sort of secondary, that, I mean, even in church growing up, you know, that, you know, don't jet, don't, you know, um, don't jest, don't um, make light of things, you know, like everything was so serious. But I knew that some, there was real truth and, and, in a way, holiness and laughter that was so great and different. And so there was intelligence and there was humor. It was zany, all that in one book. And, and it was really my Damascus moment of like, this is what I want to do. I want to do something that makes people feel the way this made me feel. But it wasn't necessarily, I'm going to write this book. You were still oh, no. kind of out checking all these other things out. Well, really. l- well, language and rhythm and laughter, and you find that in music. You find that, I mean, I play the drums. I started playing the drums not long after I read the book. I started doing plays not long after I read the book because it was something about ideas and language and rhythm and laughter. And that's not necessarily, I mean, it's, I can look back and go, well, clearly I was leading me on a path of writing, but that's one of the things I, I say in the new book is that, even after you have your Damascus moment, your 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 holy moment where you feel like the Lord or the universe is calling you to this life, it, the way forward still isn't clear after that. It could it could go in twelve different directions, and young people need to hear that because if they if they shoot off in one direction and then they start crashing and burning, they need to know that it's it's actually okay to turn around and choose something else because the thing that got you started goes off in a lot of different directions, not just one. Yeah. We're back on the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Harrison Scott Key. His new book is Congratulations. Who are you again? <laughs> Good. You did it exactly right. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, but there will be many interpretations, like you say, that yes. can change over time. Um, well, you're talking about kind of the, you know, taking different roads and, and then maybe backtracking in that. And so y- from from the book, it seems like you, you had a fairly kind of serious trajectory in terms of higher education, like, you yeah. know, going into theater, going in, trying to be a playwright. Yes. Um, you got your PhD, you know, so talk a little bit about you, you. It seems like even though you had this joyful element, there was a, you know, like, I'm going to be a serious scholar <laughs> yes. or, 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 or whatever. Yeah, I you know, I, that's a 
that's a whole separate issue. I mean, I think, I mean, I did, I could have gone, I had opportunities to, to go to Chicago and try to do comedy or go to New York. Chicago was really always where I wanted to go. And I, I was in a comedy improv group. We used to rehearse at New Stage here in town called uh, Capital City Improv. I'm sure it's not still going, but if it is, God bless. Um, it was so much fun. But I wanted to do that. But the the higher ed element was, it was a, a not just a credential, but um, something to legitimize what I was doing. Um, I think it was my father spoke so often about um, getting that paper, as he called it, getting your degree. My father did not have a college degree, and I think it, he saw how it um, limited his options that he he was always having to defend himself. He was always having to sort of um, make a case for him being at the table wherever he was because he didn't have that. A lot of that was probably personal and not other people. That was just his own insecurity about it. But I know that with his um, uh, with his job too, that he was always, you know, I, I remember him saying that there were younger men who had college degrees who were making more money than him because they had the degree. He wasn't bitter about it, um, and he could have been. He wasn't, but he continually um, impressed upon my brother and me that we needed to get degrees. And he did that so much, and I think that I think that's one reason that I stayed in college for 10 years and ended up with two master's degrees and a PhD, uh, in part because of just him he, just hearing how his life suffered because he didn't have that. Also, it does add some legitimacy. I mean, he was proud to say, oh, well, my son's a doctor. I'm not the kind of doctor who can help people, but um, but I am but I am a doctor. My kids are still don't remember that I'm a doctor of, of anything. I'm, and pe- sometimes people introduce me as Dr. Key, and they're like, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, I have a PhD, and they're like, what is that? I'm like, I'm a doctor. And they're like, no, you're not. You're not yeah. a doctor. Um, so I think I do think there was some uh, some of my childhood just – I think that that lent me to to a career and, and wanting to get that credential. But I can say that when I was at Bellhaven College, Bellhaven University now, when I was at Bellhaven in the 90s, I was – it was like paradise. I loved it. I loved that we could talk about serious ideas in the classroom. I loved that uh, you didn't have to be in class all day. That was awesome. I You know, like that's – Everybody loves that about college. But I love that we could do that and then we could be in a band or you could be in a play and that there was joy and laughter and community. I thought, I, I never want to leave a place like this. And I, I wanted to find a way to stay in college forever. And so I had I did have that dream to make people laugh and to, to write or perform or something. But I definitely had the dream to be in a in a community of learning. And I'm, and I'm very fortunate to, to be at SCAD now. I've been there for 12 years. And it is, it, it's, uh, it's, I feel it's heaven. I love it. I mean, there are always exhibitions and we just had the uh, SCAD Savannah Film Festival. Uh, I got to meet John Krasinski from The Office, oh, wow. who is just as nice and normal in and, and, uh, real life as he is uh, funny on the show. So uh, that was always a dream too, not just the comedy and the performing and the art. More almost the community of that of that world too. You know? Yeah, being able to talk about real ideas. You know, my mom was one of the few, the first people I could ever really have serious conversations with. Not not about my feelings. I mean, although I'm sure we talked about that, but just about theology and philosophy and 
you know, something you would read in a book. And and my first best friend, um, a guy named Mark Blanton, who I met at McLaurin High School uh, out in Star, Mississippi, um, he was he was the first friend I had where we could talk about real ideas. Now, they, we I'm sure if you listen to recordings of those conversations, they were inane. I mean, we listened to a lot of doors back then. Oh, and yeah, we, deep. We, and, I, you know, there's I talk in the book about this. Like, we read, we exchanged books and... Like when we read Jurassic Park, I mean, this was before the film came out. We thought we, 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 it's like we had just been reading a science textbook. We were like, this is really, we need to discuss this dinosaurs thing. Right. And when the, when the movie came out, we we're like, oh, this is for kids. We thought it was like serious <laughs> ideas. But uh, I, so I was always drawn to those intellectual conversations. And, and today, I mean, all my friends are people that I can, we can have serious conversations with and still make fart jokes. And that's really important to me, both of those things. Excellent. You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Harrison Scott Key, and we're talking about his new book, Congratulations. Who are you again? <laughs> uh, it's a memoir, and um, it's just come out. Um, now, the kind of the, I would say, kind of middle section of the book is kind of the struggle to get, you know, you know, from from the idea of I'm going to write something funny to the book, you know, you get the book contract and, yeah. and you move forward. So, and and I I thought it was really helpful in terms of you kind of just explaining some of the mechanics of how you got from one place to the other and just the yeah. the struggles of that. People, they leave that, they, the middle is always boring in any story, and they typically leave that out. So my challenge with this book was, well, there, there are three challenges that this book addresses. The first is, how do you know what you're supposed to be? Everybody talks about, like, you can do anything. You can be anything. Your dreams can come true. This is America. Like, this is still the land of dreams. But that's the, there's a big dream before that, which is what am I supposed to, what is my dream? Just finding it out, especially with so many options today. And I don't, I'm not just talking about people who come from a, a, a wealthy, privileged background. I mean, this is like in all of human history, the different things you can major in, the different ways you can, the different places you can go to college, the ways you can pay for that, all the choices you have about who you want to be, what you want to do and be in the world. There has never been in the history of the world this many options for a young person. And just picking, just finding out what you're good at, it, that can seem impossible. There are people who are 30, 40, 50, 70 years old who still haven't figured out what their calling is. So that's the first piece. And that, that takes me about 100 pages in the book just to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. And then once you know, how do you go about doing it? And that's the middle section. That's really act two of the book. And then once you've done it, how do you know you've succeeded? Like, when can you stop? At, can you just, like, stop and have a beer and you're like, I did it? Nobody – they don't teach you how to do that in school. They don't teach you – now, here's – now, when you get your – when you get your Academy Award, you can stop. <laughs> you know, like it's, it doesn't quite work like that. But that middle section of the book is all about once I knew what I wanted to be, how do you become the thing? And it's, of course, I'm talking about writing and being funny and how do you learn how to do those things. But I'm really hoping that this book is applicable to anybody who once they know what they want to do, there are very specific things you have to go about. You have to surround yourself by people who are already good at the thing. And that's really hard because when you're creative, you don't want people telling you you're no good. But you need to surround yourself with people who love you who can tell you that you're no good at the thing yet and how to get better at it. So you you got to surround yourself with peers who are also trying to do the thing that you can support. So, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're trying to open a business, you need other friends who've done that. 
you need to talk to them. And if you don't have friends who've opened businesses, you need to go seek out somebody who's smarter than you, who's done that, just as to be friends, to be a mentor. And you have to learn very specific things. Um, it's not easy. And it took me from the moment I announced that I wanted to be a writer to my family. I made the, I mean, I probably announced that in my head when I was younger, but the moment I told my mother and father at Thanksgiving, 1998, that I wanted to be a writer from the, to the moment that I got a book deal was, uh, 12 and a half years. And those were 12 and a half of, of really important years when I could have been, um, making a lot more money in a different career or pursuing other things. It took a long time. And that's why most people give up because it takes so long and they don't realize how long it's supposed to take. Talk a little bit about that struggle, and you know, you, I think the section is called the "Ass in the Chair." Yes, and 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 how you how you went from you know you knew that you had to do that, yeah. you, you finally figured that out, but getting to where it was a struggle to where I think in later on you say like I can't operate well if I don't do this. You know yes. that how did you you know bridge that gulf and talk a little bit uh, about that? Well. Um, so much of hab, um, so much of life is habit or ritual or custom. You know, you become what you do, and so you know whatever whatever habits you have, whatever daily and weekly habits you have, uh, shape your entire consciousness. And if you get up every day and write for three hours or two hours, even on holidays, um, it just becomes a part of how you work and how your mind works and how your the rhythm of your of your body and your soul, then it feels it's just like working out. I mean, if you go run, you know, ten miles every morning, then the, the morning that you don't, you'll be cranky. You'll you'll feel like something's missing, and it's the same for writing or anything creative. I I was very lucky in that um, one of the reasons I stopped writing plays and started writing prose is because I with plays I knew I would probably have to move to a much larger city than Jackson. I would have to I mean Chicago, New York, LA, um you know I have you know friends who are working playwrights in other cities but you really have to move to the big ones. Um most people do. And I knew that with a wife and we wanted children and uh that I would really need to do something where I could write just in my house at 5 a.m. If you're a playwright, you can do that. But at some point, you have to find other actors and you have to put on plays. And that, and I needed something that was very modular that I could really, that could, if we had to move to a different job, I could still do it. And so, um, you know, if you're a painter, you can paint. It's, you just need a little bit of space and a canvas. Um, you need certain tools. But with writing, it was very simple and it was very mobile. And that was very appealing too. And I don't want to discount those technical sides of what you end up picking to do and be. Um, so, yes, I don't know. I've forgotten what you asked, but. No, we kind of got onto it. And, and, and kind of that struggle, you talk a lot about, you know, you give some examples of, I mean, it wasn't like I'm going to write the funny book. I write the book about my father. And it seemed like you were pushing against that. People oh, were no, suggesting yes. that to you. And you're like, no, no, no. No, I did not want to write about my dad at all. Oh, Lord, no. I didn't want to be one of those guys who wrote the daddy book, that the daddy issues. That was so tired and old and done. And I did not have daddy issues. I was so normal and well-adjusted which is false, of course, but I didn't want to do that. Also, my father was still alive, and I didn't want to write some, you know, tell-all like, my daddy beat me, but I still love him. You know, I didn't want to—that was just sounded awful. It didn't sound funny at all. Um, 
And so I was just trying to – I was looking for a story. I wrote so many bad stories, Larry. It's embarrassing. I wrote stories, anthropomorphic stories. I wrote a, nov- a novella about an armadillo. Um, man, that – I like – The guy who invented ba- – New Coke. New, that yes. was the one I was wondering that, that about. That was a great, and in fact, it's not a terrible idea. It was, it was a death, no. it was a deathbed story of the guy who invented New Coke, and it was in Atlanta, and and, and the whole it was like the death of Ivan Illich. It was so strange, but I remember when I finished it, I was like, what, the, what the hell am I doing? This is so strange. Like nobody's going to read this. I think I was just casting. A, I was just, li- I was looking for. Something strange. I felt like humor must be strange because most things that are funny, people are like, that's weird. Or I hadn't thought of that. Like, where'd they think of that? And so I was I was looking for weirdness and I was sort of intentionally going for it when um, that's not at all how where you find humor. I mean, you can I mean, and that's that's not an uncommon mistake. A lot of young writers who want to write funny, a funny play or a funny they're an animation. They want to write a funny, you know, uh, 3D cartoon or a funny screenplay tend to just pick weird things because they think that's where humor is. When in fact, humor is just it's very simple. It's incongruity. It's two things that don't fit together. And once I started figuring that out and started looking at these stories about my dad, I would tell, you know, I'd write some story about, I mean, the, the dad stuff just kept percolating up and bubbling up through me. Um, and anytime I was sitting around a campfire, sitting on a front porch and telling stories, I would end up telling some of these hunting stories or the football story where my dad convinced me to cheat at a football game in Pearl. Or I would tell stories of fishing stories, duck hunting stories, stories about the country. And when I was in graduate school and I'd, I'd be in Chicago or be in other cities where a lot of people were from other countries or they were they didn't grow up in the South or didn't grow up in a rural part of the world, I would tell these stories just about working on a farm or, you know, the time, you know, that I watched a man, you know, like beat a pig to death with a hammer. Like, you, you tell a story like that and people are like, what are, what, like, where, what? Are, where are you from, you yeah. know? And, and I, I realized that what was weird is the stuff that looked so normal to me growing up that 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 was really strange to everybody. The incongruity of somebody like me who really just wants to read and like watch movies and, and, you know, like talk about ideas. And like, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't, I'm, I'm not a, I didn't see myself as a sportsman. I mean, I like, I like to walk. I like to ride my bike. Um, but I wasn't outdoorsy. But to, that the incongruity of somebody like me having those stories and growing up in that environment that's where comedy was. And the real uh, engine of that, the sort of lightning rod of all of that was my dad. And it took me a long time to see that. And I was like, okay, this is not going to be a whiny, complainy story about my father and me. If, if it's going to get there, like, I, and if you read the first book, there are real moments of sadness and um, anger and tenderness and uh, redemption very serious things are happening in that book, but that was not my intention at first. I just wanted to write a freaking funny book. And the more I learned about story and how stories work, the more I realized that there was a lot more inside of me than just laughter. And that stuff started coming out. And it, of course, thankfully, it made its way into the book. I, I think that if I went back and wrote that first book now, it would probably be even sadder and angrier just because I have a lot more um, uh, it's easier for me to express those things than it was back then. And I think there's probably a lot more honesty in this new book. Not that there were lies in the first book, that there's just 
I'm not trying as hard just to do a dog and pony show of comedy in this next book. It's funny, but in a different way. Yeah, yeah. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour. Today, our guest is Harrison Scott Key. We're talking about his new book. Congratulations. Who are you again? Um, so, and then, so let's move to kind of like the last third of the book, which is, you know, the, you, you get the book contract, you, you write the book, and then the book comes out. And so now all your dreams are going to come true, right? But, but, but it, you know, it goes ways that you, you wouldn't have expected. Well, um, when all your dreams come true, all of your nightmares come true too, um, or a lot of them. Uh, I, I heard a speaker not long ago who, you know, talked about the tendency, the human tendency to unhappiness because, you know, as soon as you score a touchdown, the goalposts change, they move out ahead of you. And that's, so I, that, I guess that's just how humans are wired. Um, we're wired to to be not satisfied, and I think that's good and that's and that's bad. It's a blessing and a curse. Um, it's good because th- th- this is how cities get built. This is how innovation happens. You're never satisfied. You want to keep growing. You want to find a you know um, a better way to grow a crop. You want to find a better way to. Um, to connect communities. Um, you want to find a better way to make uh, a Thanksgiving turkey by shoving a duck and a chicken inside of it. And then maybe, I'm sure 100 years from now, they'll be putting goats inside turduckens and other animals, not, not even birds. Um, but the curse of that is, <laughs> is that you never know when to stop. You, you, nev- you always feel like you're running. You always feel like you're having to change. and change. You can't just sort of have that... Uh, um, like paradise doesn't feel when you hear the word paradise i see people like relaxing on the beach i don't see people building cities and so um those twin the the blessing and the curse of always changing is what i experienced in the when i had success i mean when i got my book deal like i should have you know looked to heaven and said you know thank you jesus i did it i did the thing i'd always set out to do um but your a dream always has footnotes it has fine print in the back, in the index, uh, that things that you are assuming will also happen when your dream come true. So you tell people, you know what, I ju- all I want to do is I want to start a business in my hometown, and I want to hire, be able to hire people in my hometown. That's all I want to do. That's a, and that's a great, noble dream to have. But as soon as you do that, you realize... Um, you know, I, I really, I want to take this dream to other towns too, or I want to expand or I want to keep growing. I want to create new products. And so everything keeps changing. Um, and that's what happens in the second half of the, the, the last third of the book is my dream came true and it was, it demanded so much of me. The genie was out of the bottle. And that's not, that's not a spoiler alert. I mean, it's what's, what's unique about my story is how it happens and, and trying to make it funny, um, or rather trying to tell it in a way that brings joy and it doesn't come out like complaining or, I mean, of course you're like, oh, well, you know, you got a giant big six figure book deal and you went on a national book tour and you kind of got famous for a while and it was real hard, like tough, tough story, man. That's really sad. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't, you don't want to tell it like that. You want to show people how insane it feels that when it's happening to you, um, and making the reader, 
sympathize with me as I'm going through this when all of my, quote, dreams were coming true was the challenge, the storytelling challenge of the last third of the book. I think I succeeded, um, but that was definitely the challenge. of at, at every point, I could feel the story start to feel like I was complaining about my blessings. And so I, I would have to pull back. I didn't want to complain yeah. at all. I just wanted to say, it's like get, it's like riding a, a wild horse through the state fair um, and and running over things and hurting people and hurting yourself and losing an arm. It was, it was insane and crazy. Yeah. And a big chunk of this is talking kind of about the book tour and, and yes. that the, the, you know, the, the physical grind of that, but also kind of the emotional element of it where you had like, um, I guess going to school for so long, you had all these classmates and people that were all over that would come yes. and maybe not, you know, they would have surprising things to say to you or, you know, yes. that you were having to kind of negotiate a lot of stuff that you maybe you weren't expecting as part of that. Yeah, the way I, I've described it to, to my friends, it's, I, I don't, Larry, I don't know if you sing karaoke, but I'm, I'm a, not a gifted singer, but I do love some karaoke. And um, if I drink a couple of beers, I start to think that I'm really good at singing. And I will perform, you know, I'll do, I'll do a little, I'll do, I have a few songs I like to do. I'll do them. Um, and, you know, people applaud, some of them cheer, some jeer, but I'm done. I mean, karaoke is awful. That's what it's, that's why it's great. And nobody, almost nobody can sing when they do karaoke. But when you, when you write a book or when you, when you, release an album, when you become a part of the public consciousness, the zeitgeist, it's sort of like leaving the restaurant where you did the karaoke and all of a sudden hearing what everybody really thought of your song that you did. You, you don't really want to know what they think. They, like, they didn't throw you out of the bar. You had a good time. You're going home. It's fine. But when you write something like this book, you start to hear what everybody thinks about you. And it's very... Um, upsetting is not the word. It's very bewildering and it's very, it's a shock when it starts to happen. People would come up to me and say, man, you were a real asshole in, in college. And then they would, can you sign this book to my mother? You know, <laughs> or man, you were really uh, like, you were really on some crazy drugs back then. No, actually I, I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs, but the, people would just say the craziest things or they would, um, they would tell, ask if I remembered stories that were really insane that I do not remember at all. But mostly I, I was uh, convicted a lot by a lot of people who told me I was a jerk, um, who told me I had been um, uh, hateful to them, cruel to them, um, and which w it was obviously very upsetting to hear this from people. I mean, I'm out promoting this funny, you know, hilarious book and having the time of my life. And all of a sudden somebody comes up and they're like, you were a real jackass to me in 1982. <laughs> um, and you have to like reconcile with that. And you have yeah. to, you know, enough people said it. I was like, oh, I, I think maybe I used to be a real jerk, man. Like, wow. I'm glad I still have, I, I texted a lot of my old friends. I'm like, thanks for not stopping being my friend. Like that was great. But think that happens. And of course you see book reviews too. And you read things about yourself online, even from people you know, who I guess don't realize that you're reading the reviews that they're writing. And they're about putting your their book, name on and it. And they're putting their name wow. on it. And I'm they're like, you're either an idiot or you're you're as mean as you're saying I was to you. Like it was hard. Mm. And so that really you can't ignore the truth about yourself when people are reminding you about it constantly if you have success. We're talking with Harrison Scott Key on the Arts Hour today, and we're talking about his new book, Congratulations. Who are you again? And um, it seems like one of the antidotes 
that you kind of came up with after a while of doing the book tour was bringing different family members along. And I, I enjoyed the the section where you, we, we mentioned it earlier, where you brought your mother along yeah. on some of on some of these readings. Yeah. Um, well, when your mom or your one of your daughters is sitting next to you, it's really hard for one of your old friends to call you an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was helpful. Um, but there was something about the vanity of even modest fame, the vanity of here I've done this thing and now I'm on this this grand tour around the country. I'm going to all my old hometowns. I'm going to places where I didn't even know anybody. I'm being ferried around by handlers at festivals. Um, I'm being sent itineraries and I just so many things happen and, it, and you really start to feel um, you start to see why celebrities act the way they do. You start, I mean, you're told by everybody that you are the most important person in the room and that whatever you need, Mr. Key or Dr. Key rather, whatever you need, you know, you, we've got it. We'll do it. You, you know, do you need water? Where do you, where would you like to sit? Is this room okay? We're going to pick you up at this time. You know, you start to f- become the center of the universe and my faith and my upbringing um, continually remind me that I am not the center of the universe, that um, uh, if anything, that's my biggest crime in life is assuming that I am. And so having my daughters or my wife or my mother, all of whom make fun of me, like they are so much funnier. All three of my daughters, my wife, my mother are all funnier than I am. And they are so much crueler than I am. And they are so much better at being funny than I am. Having them with me was an antidote. It was, uh, it was like having it was like my thunder shirt because they kept me normal. Also, when you have a, you know, when you have a line of a hundred people who want you to sign their books and then you have a daughter who's saying like, I really want hot, a hot dog for supper, dad, can we go get hot dogs? That grounds you in a way that no amount of petting or flattery or uh, people asking me to sign their books can do. And you need, you need to be grounded just like a, you need to be a normal person um, to be reminded that you don't matter as much as everybody is pretending you do. And it seems like it kind of led you to also related kind of in that the gratitude of people just coming rather than than where are my masses, you know, that, you know, just being grateful whether there was four people yes. or a or hundred. It's, it's hard. I mean, just getting out of the house to go to a book event or to go to a lecture or to a talk is a lot of work especially when you have uh, obligations, when you're married, you have children, you have a job. And so I, I was just, I started to see, wow, these, these people came here. They could have been anywhere and they came here. And it's such a platitude and it's so simplistic, but I found gratitude just flowering in my heart at every event. Even, I mean, I did one event where, um, I mean, I did many events where nobody showed up or they'd put 50 chairs out and there would be two people. And like my one friend in town would come with me and we'd walk in and there'd would, be two people and then him. And he's like, where do I sit? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, just any, anywhere. You know, that's so humbling. And, and you, you learn to not look at the 48 empty chairs, but the two that are full and to give those people a great show, to give them what they came for. And that if you ha- can have faith about that, the other 48 seats won't matter. And eventually when they don't matter – they will fill up and you have to you have to have faith that that will happen if you keep putting good stuff out into the world yeah 
That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And uh, good luck on the tour and, and good luck with this new book. Uh, if people want more information, want to learn about more about you and your work, where should we send them? Um, you can go to my website. It's my whole name, no spaces, harrisonscottkey.com. You can just Google me. Um, I'm all over. My face is all over the internet. Um, apologies in advance. I've got some great vi uh, videos out on yeah. YouTube, book trailers and stuff. I'd love everybody to check those out. Excellent. Well, if you've listened, you'd like to listen back to the show, or you want to share it with a friend, you can go to the MPB website, mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows there as streaming files, or you can get it as a podcast as well. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.